Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. The church this weekend celebrates the third Sunday after Pentecost, and we will be looking at the Old Testament reading from Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 22 to 24. The epistle text is from 2 Corinthians, it's chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, and optionally, verses 11 through 17. So some of your congregations will have those, some won't. And then the gospel text is going to be from Mark chapter 26, sorry, Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 34. There is no chapter 26. Don't try to go that far in the book. All right, so we're going to jump in the Old Testament reading from Ezekiel to get us started. And really, in order to know this one, you got to do some backwards research on the text. So I'm going to go ahead, uh, I've got my Bible open here to Ezekiel chapter 17. The whole chapter in and of itself is a prophecy. We get the last three verses of the chapter which take this prophecy and point to Jesus. Which is good, right? But the rest of the chapter is the context. I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read for you the first 21 verses of Ezekiel chapter 17, and I don't think I have to unpack them very much because God does himself in the text. The word of Yahweh came to me, the son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord Yahweh. A great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage, and behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Say thus says the Lord Yahweh, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it up from its roots. Behold, it is planted, will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it sprouted? Then the word of Yahweh came to me, say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under the oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might not that it might stand but he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army will he thrive can one escape who does such things can he break the covenant and escape as i live declares the lord yahweh surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king whose oath he despised and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, will not help him in war. When mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives, he despised the oath and breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised, and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. 
and all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, I have spoken. So this is our introduction into the Christological text that we get in our churches this weekend. And already the 21 verses you've got to make two moves with. The first move is a worldly move, right? It's, it's looking at this from the perspective of, well, worldly allegiances. So if you have a king and he takes a people, he plants them in a land, he gives them a place to call their own within his kingdom and promises to them that he will care for them as they are part of his kingdom. And yet they choose to trust in another. They choose to ally themselves with another. In the example in the text, this is Babylon and Egypt. So the Babylonian king has given this people land to live in. He was kind to them. He did well with them. He made a covenant that he would protect and care for them. And yet they went and sought Pharaoh instead. Instead of trusting that the king of Babylon would care for them, they went off and chased after another kingdom. And so the point in the worldly idea is, will they thrive? Will they continue? We would talk about this today in terms of things like treason. You know, we'd call them traitors, and they, they would not thrive. They would not survive. A lot of people struggle with this concept with immigration in the United States right now. If a group of people were to move here and this government, this land, were providing and caring for them, and yet instead of being Americans, they wanted to serve a different country, a lot of people would be quite upset with, with that. That's the worldly kind of picture that we get, but then God flips it, and he, he points out this is actually the, the relationship of him to his people. He is that first king who has provided a land, the promised land, to his people. He is the king who has covenanted with them that he will care for them, that he will provide for them and protect them, and yet there they are chasing after other kingdoms. And so even though Babylon is the actually the good example in the in the parable, Babylon is the very nation that God will use against his people of Judah for their unfaithfulness. The very people the very nation that will bring about the withering of Judah. This is the background. This is what we had to unpack a little bit before we can actually understand what's happening in the text that we have. Thus says the Lord Yahweh. So this is verse 22 through 24, our text for the weekend. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. And I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am Yahweh. I bring low the high tree, and I make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am Yahweh, I have spoken, and I will do it. There's a lot of emphasis in this little paragraph, isn't there? Thus says the Lord Yahweh. Thus says the Lord is the, really the formula of speech for a prophet of God. I, myself, that's an emphatic use of the reflexive pronoun, doubling down instead of just saying I will make a sprig I myself will 
I will set it out. I will break it off. I will. I myself will plant it. I will plant it. I bring low. I make high. I dry up. I make the dry tree flourish. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. I will do it. The emphasis on the action of God. I mean, were you counting there? How many times was that? I wasn't counting. But you can. Go for it. This is the word of God. This is the sure and certain word of God. He has promised it. He has decreed it. He will do it. Okay, so what is it that he's going to do? He's going to take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar. And he will set it out. The cedar, the large tree here, is a reference to his holy people of Israel. To that nation. So he's going to take from the top of the tree, lofty, so he has, he has already himself set it up as being lofty. He's the one that has exalted it and among the nations. He's going to take a sprig from the top of the tree. Now, maybe a tribe. Maybe we could look at that sprig as being the reference of 2 Samuel chapter 7. The prophet Nathan's promise to David that one of his sons would sit on his throne forever. In that case, instead of a tribe, maybe we're looking at it as a kingly lineage. He will, God will set it out. He will set it apart. He will make it holy. And then he will break off from the topmost of its young twigs. And this is going to be your reference to a Messiah. This is the king that comes at the end of that line of kings to sit on that throne of Israel. I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain, is a reference to Jerusalem. And honestly, we can push that reference even further, right? So Jesus planted, we might talk about his incarnation and his birth. So the incarnation doesn't happen on a high and lofty mountain of Jerusalem. I don't know how, how high up Nazareth might be. But Jesus taking on flesh occurs the conception of Jesus roughly around the time that, that Gabriel makes that announcement to Mary and then to Joseph before they've traveled south. Now, we think of the Christmas narrative, and that happens in Bethlehem, which is close to Jerusalem and itself would have been fairly elevated. But Jesus will go to Jerusalem. And here's the connection I think I want to end up making with this. The cross. So Jerusalem is that high point. You know, you build your you build your capital city, which the nation of Israel did, on high ground, on the highest ground you can and make it fortifiable, easily defendable as attackers have to fight uphill. Jesus is crucified just outside the city gates of Jerusalem, just outside the wall of the city. So he's, you're still on that mountaintop. You're still on that high hill. And then you're talking about being lifted up even higher above the ground upon the cross. However high the cross stood, I don't know the height of Jesus' cross. I'm not sure anyone does, other than God himself. This would connect to some of the other parables and things that Jesus talks about, and we're going to get to parables today in the gospel reading. But unless a grain, is it unless a grain of wheat dies, it doesn't yield anything it doesn't produce but if it dies then it produces so that God is planting Jesus planting his son planting the Messiah on the high and lofty mountain of Jerusalem 
on a cross, on a tree. And Jesus dies in order to bear fruit, to be fruitful for the nations. I think that's a picture that we can connect to in the New Testament. Now, on the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. This is the kingdom work of Christ. As he recruited his disciples, he, he trained them, he equipped them to go out and to serve and themselves to bear fruit. This noble cedar then, we might talk about as being the church. And so your, your production of fruit, you could talk about all the different missionary journeys of the various apostles, the, how they spread the word of, of Christ around the nations, and the nations came to know Christ thanks to that work. Thomas to India, Mark to Ethiopia, Paul up to the various places on the north side of the Mediterranean, and so forth. Under this tree will dwell every kind of bird. This, will, this reminds me of the parable of the mustard seed itself, which we get in the Mark text, right? I had written down in my notes Matthew chapter 13, but we get it in the Mark text itself, that that tree is going to put out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Every kind of bird... Just like in verse 24, all the trees of the field shall know that I am Yahweh. Both of these are references to all nations getting the chance to hear the gospel, to hear the proclamation of the good news that comes through this planted one, this Jesus Christ. They will not believe it, many of them. Many of them will choose to remain in their stubborn rebellion against God. But the word will reach them. It will come to their, their land. Then we see some of the things that the Lord does. He brings the high tree low, so he humbles the proud. He makes the low tree high, so he exalts the lowly. We see this in the very ministry of Christ. The disciples are lowly, and yet they get to inherit the earth. Right, thinking of the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We've got teenage boys, fishermen, tax collector. We've got women and men of all classes and ranks that hear the good news. And it's often the the lowest, it's often the, the poor that believe it rather than the wealthy, although there are some examples of that, right? Joseph of Arimathea, a Roman centurion, those might be a couple of examples to consider, but for the most part, God humbles the proud, those who think highly of themselves, and he takes the lowly ones that the world would cast aside and he uses them for his his great and grand purposes. He is Yahweh. He has spoken. He will do it. The Lord will work through you. He will work through me to share this good news to the ends of the earth. That Christ is Lord of all and has come to save us. Our epistle reading is from Paul's second letter, to the church in Corinth, chapter 5. We will all be reading from verses 1 through 10. I'm going to throw on verse 11 through 17 here in the podcast today, as I know some of our congregations will make use of those verses this weekend. Also, they were the optional text. So, as we look at the, the text today, we have to remember where we're coming from in the previous chapter. Paul essentially was having a discussion about the suffering that he and the fellow brothers on his missionary journeys have endured. And they have endured it willingly because they know that they have everything in Jesus Christ and that even if they were to lose this earthly life, they still have life in Christ. And we're going to continue to see that theme 
in today's readings. So, suffering of the apostles is not to be severed from their hope that they have in the promise. In fact, it is the very hope that they have in the promise that allows them to endure whatever suffering they face in this world. And that is a wondrous message for the Christian church today to know, to believe, and to truly hold firmly to. It is your hope in the resurrection that Jesus Christ gives to us that allows you to endure whatever you face in this world. Because you know the best is yet to come. You know. You know it. It's yours. And it's in Christ that you have it. So the first paragraph, verses 1 through 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Verse 1 ended our text together last weekend. So we've already looked at this, but let's review it real quick. The tent that is our earthly home, we talked about how this could be the body. It could be our physical house that you actually live in. It could be the earth itself. And you can... You can see different layers of this, this verse as you look at it from each of those perspectives. But we have a building from God not made with hands that's eternal in the heavens. What we have in this world will be destroyed, right? This physical body that I, I'm in right now. Should Christ not come back first, this body will be destroyed. Whether by some kind of a freak accident, some kind of an illness, uh, some kind of um, natural disaster, or simply by old age and the effect of years of sin upon it, this body will be destroyed. The home that I live in will not last. My current home was built in 1999. What's it got? 50 years? 80? 100? Do they really build them like they used to? How long will it endure? Again, should it not get torn down first by a tornado or a fire or, or some other kind of disaster? Or... Or violence should the culture turn against the church. And then the idea of this earth in general, right? We know this earth is perishing. We've got a whole wave of people in our culture around us telling us that we're killing it. I think that's a little prideful to think that man can destroy the creation of God when God himself has admitted he still cares for it, right? But nonetheless, we do know the earth is perishing. We do know that we have broken creation, and we know that God is going to give us a new heaven and a new earth. So again, you can look at it from any of those layers. All of these things are fading. They're all passing away. And when they do, not if, when they do, we have a dwelling a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. God will raise this body, restored, renewed, glorious, immortal. We don't know what that looks like, but it's a promise he has given. And he will do it, to connect to the end of the Ezekiel text there. Jesus said he was preparing a house for us in this paradise. We have no idea what that looks like. If we'll have a literal roof over our head in paradise, 
certainly remains to be seen. But God is preparing a place for us there, and he's preparing the new heaven and the new earth. So whichever layer you want to take a a crack at verse 1 with, I think they all fit. I told you last week I lean away from the the idea of the body simply because earlier in chapter 4, Paul had called the body jars of clay, and it would seem like a a quick turnaround to, to use a different analogy for the body and call it a tent. So I, I leaned towards taking it as as the world in which we live. But, again, I think it's beneficial to be able to see all three layers. So as we come to the rest of this paragraph then, in this tent we groan. Again, the body, the home, the earth itself. We groan while we're here longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And I want to pause on that one. Do we actually long for our heavenly dwelling? I know many of our elderly do. Many of the times when I visit nursing homes to visit the the sick and and to visit the shut-ins, they are wondering why they're still here. What's the point of all of this? Why can't they just die and be with God? I hear that a lot. It's not the right thing to wonder. And so I do push back against them a little bit. And I try to do so kindly and softly because they're suffering, right? They're grieving. They're, they're wondering what their purpose is. And so I try to give them some things to consider and ponder. I redirect their prayers to the end of Scripture, to that short and simple prayer of John, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Hold Christ to that final promise that he is coming back. I redirect their purpose in life to think of how they are serving the people where they are. If they're a shut-in, how are they serving their neighbor? If they're in a nursing home, how are they serving the staff? And you can serve in those locations in multiple ways. You can serve in those locations by talking about Christ, by talking about your faith. Those people all need to hear it. You can also serve by being served. Your neighbors need to know how to care for someone that isn't themselves. And that's a very difficult life lesson to learn. The sinful nature hates that lesson. And so it is an opportunity of service to teach a generation younger than yourself how to serve. But for the rest of us, do we, do we long to put on our heavenly dwelling? Or are we so caught up in this life? Are we so caught up in the comforts of this world? Or maybe the stresses of this world? that we're not even looking for it. I think that's the greater danger for the Christian today in our age. Much like it was in the church of Corinth. They struggled. Paul had to write 1 Corinthians 15 to them. When I go back and read that one, they were struggling to believe that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. If this faith is only for this life now, we are to be pitied above all people, is the kind of response Paul gives them. There is a resurrection. There is a heavenly dwelling. There is something yet to come. So while we are here, we groan because we realize that we are stuck in a broken and sinful world. We're stuck in the midst of our own sinful nature. And we want out. We want to be with God. We want to be in paradise. We want to see the beauty of all that he has promised to us. We want to no longer be found naked. That is, stuck in our shame, stuck in our guilt. Adam and Eve did not recognize that they were naked until after their sin. And after they sinned, they looked down. But prior to their sin, they looked at the world around them. Prior to their sin, they cared for creation. They cared for one another. They did not care for themselves. Adam did not care for Adam. Eve did not care for Eve. And then after sin, they only started to think about themselves. The sinful nature turns us inward. It focuses our attention on me, 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 me. 
in this tent, we are selfish, we are sinful, we are turned inward. And so the Christian recognizes this, repents of this, desires to not be this. And so we groan that that sinful nature would die that the shame and the guilt that we carry around from our sin would be taken away from us, which in Christ it has. We rejoice at that. But while we are still in this tent, we continue groaning. We continue to be burdened by the weight of our sin because we sin daily. We sin much daily. And we groan not that we would be unclothed, not that we would be made naked, but that we would be clothed further by Christ's righteousness, is one of the ways Paul writes about it. Um, Another way to think about it is the robe uh, given to the martyrs in Revelation chapter 7. They have made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. That we would put on Christ. Christ has swallowed up death. The way Paul phrases it here, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. A really interesting phrase. What is mortal? That is everything, right? Look around you. Everything is mortal. Everything is passing away. And life is going to swallow it all up. Like this giant fish. (laughs) Jonah. Really odd picture just seeing a giant fish swallowing the whole world. It would be the whole universe though at that point. Life swallows it all up. Christ swallows it all up and then gives us that building from God, that house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He gives us that new creation, which is where Paul is going with this text. We'll get there. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. God has prepared us. And how do we know He's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Collateral might be a way to think of that last phrase. It doesn't quite get there. The the analogy falls short. But if, if a poor man... And we hear Jesus talk about this a little bit in the gospel text. If a poor man is in need of assistance, if he's, you know, for example, he, he's out of money, he's he doesn't have an ox to help him work a field, and so he comes to you to borrow an ox, and you take from him a guarantee that you'll get your ox back, and so you give him, he gives you his cloak. His, his covering. And we read in the scriptures that you're supposed to give that thing back to him because it's the only thing he has to stay warm at night. The Spirit is our guarantee. The Lord has made us this promise. The Spirit has then come into us, come to us, given us faith, created faith in us through the waters of baptism and the hearing of the word being proclaimed. He's the one that brings us to repentance. He's the one that helps us to trust in this promise. So the Spirit is our guarantee. Verses 6 through 10 will wrap up the text for some of us this weekend. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We are always of good courage. We have nothing to fear. If this body gets destroyed, Christ will raise it. If my house gets destroyed, Christ has made me a better one. If this earth gets destroyed, 
Christ has promised a new one. We have nothing to fear, except verse 11, the fear of the Lord, but we'll come back to that. We have nothing to fear in this world. While we are at home in the body, so while I live in this flesh, we're away from the Lord. We are not with Christ in his paradise, right? The better promise is yet to come. The marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom is yet to come. The new heaven, the new earth are yet to come. This is not this is not our home. This is not our eternal dwelling place. It is temporary. We are here, but for a moment, but for a blink of an eye, we walk by faith, not by sight. So we trust not in the things of this world, but we trust rather in God and in his promises to us. We are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Right? I know I picked on us earlier in verse 2 how many of us really truly long to put on our heavenly dwelling. But if I were to stop and ask just about any Christian today, if you had a choice to be with Christ in paradise or to stay here, which would you choose? I mean, just about any one of us would say to be with Christ in paradise because it is better than this place by far. When I read verse 8 this in preparation here uh, for the text this morning, <laughs> what I thought of was, if you want to go to heaven sooner, preach the gospel. I know that's not directly what Paul is saying here, but it is kind of an implication. And it is what we've been reading in the previous chapter about his suffering for sharing the gospel. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And it is by sharing the gospel that many Christians throughout history have been sent home to their Lord. There have been many martyrs of the Christian faith, and, and the estimates that come out today tell us that there were more martyred Christians in the last century than in the, the previous 19 centuries combined, which is incredible to consider, um, knowing just how much the Christian church has been hated and persecuted over time uh, throughout different locations in this world, sometimes by those who even claim to be Christian themselves. So many, many Christians have experienced this. If you want to go to heaven sooner, preach the gospel. Although we are to preach the gospel anyway. Whether we're at home or away, verse 9 is a, is a key one. We make it our aim to please him. Whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Oh, there's a verse similar to that in Colossians, Paul's letter to the church in Colossa, uh, basically saying the same thing, that whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. And we're going to see that in the additional, the added-on text, the optional text for the weekend. So stick around for, for another paragraph or two. We all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us will stand before that throne. And we will receive what is due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. That is a reference to the judgment of works. But we, we rejoice that it is by Christ's work that we end up being judged. But that doesn't mean you know, we're, we should not consider what is good and evil now. It does not mean that we reject what the Lord has given us to do. Because the Lord has given you work to do. He has given us work to do and we should do it. It is verse 10 that leads us into verse 11. So the judgment seat of Christ, keep that in mind as we read this next paragraph. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. 
But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I went ahead and finished the text there. So as we, again, look at verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, keep verse 10 in mind. All will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We'll be judged on account of what we've done. And so the question of, well, what is it that we've been given to do? We are to bear fruit. We see that in the Old Testament and in the gospel reading alike. And so it is our fear of the Lord. It is knowing that we must stand before him on the judgment day that drives us to preach. And it is it is for that reason, in part, that we preach to our neighbor. It's also, again, the fear of the Lord, knowing that our neighbor must stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, that we are encouraged to preach to them also, that they too may have Christ standing for them on that day. As Christians, we know that Christ forgives our sins. And so even the evil that we've done, and we've all done much evil, even that evil is forgiven. And we get to hear God speak to us on the day of judgment and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Come into, into the joy of your master from the parable of the talents in Matthew. But just because we know that Christ forgives us doesn't mean we should live this life as though we can do whatever we want. We were bought for a price, as Paul told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're his. He's given us work to do. We're part of his family. We should do it. Now, what the rest of verse 11 is getting at, and into the rest of the paragraph as well, as you go through the whole letter of Second Corinthians, you, you see that there are questions about who Paul is, about his authority, about his intentions. There was a group among them called the, well, that Paul sarcastically calls the super apostles, um, that, that essentially claimed he was weak, and that when he was actually there physically present with the people, he was really kind of a nobody, and there was no reason to listen to him. He only speaks strongly when he writes them letters, so just ignore him. Is kind of the message being given, and instead of listening to Paul, listen to us, of course, right? And so Paul mockingly calls them the super apostles, that they're somehow better than he is, even though he received the commission to be an apostle directly from Jesus himself. And so... Paul makes the case in verse 11 that he is, out of fear of the Lord, sharing the gospel with the Corinthian church, and it, that who he is and what he's doing is known to God. So in the end, it doesn't matter what the Corinthians think about Paul. God knows what Paul is doing. God knows that Paul is being faithful in this thing. However, Paul does hope that the Corinthians will know it too because he does not want their faith to be misled. He does not want their faith to be attacked by these false teachers that are among them. Again, the super apostles. So it, Paul is not commending himself. He's not commending his team, as you might consider uh, some of the other men traveling with him. But he's trying to equip the Corinthians that they can speak, that they can answer the charges of the super apostles who are boasting in their own outward appearance. 
rather than boasting in Christ, which is going to be part of the theme of the letter as a whole. Verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, so in other words, basically crazy, it is for God, for for the love of him, for the sake of him, for his purposes. But if we're in our right mind, so if everything seems normal about us, it is for you that they may preach the gospel and may be heard. The love of Christ controls us. So we talked about the fear of, of judgment being a motivator potentially for the Christian to do what the Christian has been given to do. And this is the opposite here. The love of Christ controls us. So this is the idea that many Christians and many Lutherans tend to say today is that the it is the gospel that motivates Uh, So you see that here too. It is Christ's love for us that ends up guiding us to do what we do. One has died for all, and therefore all have died. He's got a great section on that in his letter to the church in Rome, Romans chapter, well, 5 and 6, that region. Verse 15 is the one I was alluding to earlier. He died for all, that those who who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died so that we no longer live for ourselves. A couple of things there. We talked about that nakedness earlier, being clothed in Christ, and the idea of the sinful nature. Um, The sinful nature lives for the sinful nature. It lives for itself, to care for itself, to better itself. Hmm, That's unfortunately seeped into Christian churches, hasn't it? In the preaching in the pulpits, self-help sermons that we see too often. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has done it. Christ died to destroy that. Christ died to forgive us of our sins, to take away that sinful nature from us, which is happening, right? It's a now and not yet. We are being restored in that process right now. God is restoring us to himself forever that those who live might no longer live for themselves. So the drowning of the old Adam, which is coming up in the next paragraph. The other way to look at this, though, is the charge of what we actually do in daily life. We are no longer to live for ourselves. Christ died for us. We're his. We are now to live as a part of his kingdom, which will be the parables and the gospel reading. That's a struggle. And in a sense, this is the topic that I have as I speak to a group of high school youth this summer at the Higher Things Conference in Colorado. Um, How do we do this? What does this mean? What does this look like? The gospel clearly calls us that that we should be holy, that we should be set apart. We're We're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We are to no longer live for ourselves. We are to die to self in order that we might live. Um, We're not to be of the world. What does this look like? What does this mean for us? So I'm digging into that a lot here in the next couple of months, I guess the next month, as I prepare for that, that, that opportunity to share the good news that comes in Christ. We no longer live for me. You no longer live for you. We live for Jesus. And that means bearing fruit. It means sharing the gospel. It means loving God and loving our neighbor. Verse 16 and 17 we've already read here. Um, We regard no one according to the flesh, according to the old Adam, the sinful nature. Christians, that's a challenge, right? 
especially as how uh, how hooked into politics most Christians are in this land, we regard no one according to the flesh. When you see your political opponent, whoever doesn't agree with whatever you think about politics, you are not to look at them as the sinner that they are. You are to look at them as a creature that God has created, as a creature that God loves and cares for, as a creature that God wants to save, and so you go to them and share that good news. It doesn't matter how evil you think they are. Drive that thought from your mind and go share Christ with them. That's the call. The next part's a little tricky. Don't hear Paul here saying that that Christ no longer has an earthly body. So even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. I mean, I think we can look at this in two other ways, other than, again, saying that Jesus has no body. That would not be true. Paul does not argue that in the rest of his writings. Again, see 1 Corinthians 15. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. When he appeared to the brothers, they saw the wounds in his flesh, and then he ascended bodily up into heaven. So instead, a couple other ways to look at this idea even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, the one would be to focus on the we idea. We regarded Christ according to the flesh. That would be our flesh. We looked at Christ through our sinful nature. We failed to see him for who he is. And that's really the second thing too, right? We didn't realize who he is. We regarded Christ according to the flesh and you could so on the first hand, you could look at this as saying that it is through our sinfulness that we saw Christ and so we did not believe. The flip side is, you could say it's it's because Christ was in a physical body, we saw him and we didn't recognize that he was both God and man, that some people just saw him and saw another man and they refused to believe. But we regard him thus no longer. There is no doubt in the Christian today about who Christ is. He is risen. He is ascended. He is reigning over heaven and earth, all creation. He gives to us his body and blood to partake of as his people for the forgiveness of sins. We know who Christ is. And so on verse 17, this is one that's pretty well known, I think. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old Adam has been drowned, and we are now new in Christ. The new Adam is in us. Adam, made from the dirt, Adam of Genesis 1 and 2, is the first Adam. Jesus is the second Adam, as Paul will sometimes write. We are, if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. We're a new creation that is being renewed day by day in word and sacrament. We are a new creation that is being built up by Christ himself, by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And that on the last day, it's going to be a sight to behold. Although we won't really behold it because we'll be too busy looking at Christ. Because all glory be to Jesus. Our gospel text for the weekend is from Mark chapter 4. It's verses 26 through 34. Up until this point, uh, Jesus has already started speaking in parables, which is, well, Mark's gospel is shorter, and he moves through things quicker. So he gets to the parables quicker um, than the other gospel writers do. Now, in this very chapter, we're going to have the purpose of the parables told to us. But before we get to that, in last week's text, which is, I think, the first parable um, in, the, in the book of Mark, what we see is the idea of Satan or the kingdom or the house that's divided against itself. And that gets us started. Now, Jesus is going to begin chapter 4 here with the parable of the sower. Then he describes the reason for parables. And then he's going to give the parable of the lamp under a basket, the seed growing, and the mustard seed. We get the seed growing, the mustard seed is our text for this weekend. So let's go ahead and quickly go back to chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, to see why Jesus says he speaks in parables. 
When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus is speaking in parables so that some, those to whom it has been given to to hear and believe, will indeed hear and believe, but that others will not understand. The opportunity is there for them to hear the gospel, but they will harden their hearts against the gospel. They will not hear it. And a part of this is going to show up again in our text at verse 33, that he he spoke many such parables to them. The people had false hopes about what a Messiah would do. So to hear that Jesus is your Messiah... He's the one that's going to save you. But your mind is so culturally ingrained to think that the Messiah is going to be like one of the Old Testament judges that delivers you from political oppression that when you see this guy and he's speaking in parables, he's just wandering around and teaching stuff, the frustration grows. You get angry. This isn't saving us from Rome. And so their continued disbelief at God's word, their continued disbelief at what God has promised, has blinded them. That last part of that verse, so verse 12 let's see, verse 12 is essentially going back to Isaiah, the prophecies of Isaiah, and so that lest they should turn and be forgiven part does cause some confusion and some difficulty for those who read it. We know from elsewhere in the scriptures that God wants all people to be saved. Right? We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We see it in the prophet Ezekiel in his writings that that Yahweh does not desire the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his evil way and live. So we have to hold, when, when a verse in Scripture challenges us, we don't, we don't run to our own understanding. We don't run to human logic. We run to other Scripture. The Lord wants to forgive. It's why he sent Christ into the world. But yet there is a hardening of the heart. And God knows this. And God gives us so many chances, but but after a while finally does give us over to the desires of our sinful hearts. All right, let's go ahead and dig in today uh, to the gospel reading Verses 26 to 29 to start us out. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So this is our first parable, which in, I think the ESV text is subtitled Parable of the Seed Growing. It's a farming parable, as many of them are. A man scatters seed on the ground. Farmers do this, even to this day. At night, he goes to bed. He rises in the morning. He does this again and again, and in ways that are unknown to him, the plant grows. 
right? He waters it. He takes care of it as he's been instructed to do from the time he was a boy by his parents and their parents before them, going back to all the way really to the garden as God gave Adam and Eve to care for the plants of the field. Even with all of our scientific advances today, there are parts of horticulture and agriculture that still elude us, that we don't understand. There was even more of that in this guy's day, uh, in, in the day of this parable. They couldn't have told you the science behind this. They didn't know how this worked, but it simply worked. The plant grew. The grain grew, and when it was ready, the farmer harvested it. The farmer doesn't cause the seed to grow. He does not give the growth. God gives the growth. Even in our atheistic worldview today, it's still God who gives the growth. God is the one who cares for his creation. And yes, we have a bit of a better understanding of how God gives the, some of that growth because he's built that into his creation, but we still don't understand it all. The world is that intricate that we can't describe how everything works. The, the interpretation of this parable would be the idea that the preacher is the farmer and the seed that he plants is the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't understand how God grows faith in someone's heart. We know how he, we know some of the how, right? We do know that he works through word. We know he works through sacrament. But we don't actually understand what that looks like as that faith is growing in that person. We just know that it does. And when the end comes, when judgment day comes, the Lord harvests the faithful. He takes us to be with himself. He gathers us to himself in paradise. And that's worth noting here. Verse 29 is the final judgment. The kingdom of God is moving toward a goal. It's not aimless. That day will come when God comes for us. And we look forward to that day. Now we shift to the other parable parable of the mustard seed in our gospel reading, verse 30 and uh, verse 30 through 32. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So the kingdom of God is, it's from an unlikely source. You, you wouldn't expect planting a small seed in the ground to get a large tree. My wife just got some pumpkin seeds and, and for this, I forget what it's called, but for this larger pumpkin, the seed was sizable. It was no small seed. And so we expect a small seed to give us a small plant. You could look at this as the, the birth of the Savior. Right? What was expected? The humble origins of the Messiah, an unexpected source for the kingdom of God to grow from, and yet, as it does, it produces so greatly. You could also look at it as Jesus, again, I mentioned this earlier, the idea that, a, that the seed must, well, the head of grain must die in order to give, to bear fruit. That's an unlikely source, right? We don't think no one in Jesus' day 
no one on Good Friday was looking at the cross and saying, Jesus is dying to forgive us of our sins and, and, and grow the kingdom of God. No one looked at it that way. They were all mourning and weeping because the guy they thought had come to save them from the Roman Empire was dying at the hands of the Roman Empire. Their hope was crushed. That his death on the cross would give us life and create a massive family. I mean, even on earth today, alive right now, the church militant is a good two billion people. We're a large family. Much has come from this, from this guy dying. It's an unlikely source, the grain of mustard seed. Becomes larger than all the garden plants, puts out branches the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. There's your connection back to the Old Testament reading of Ezekiel chapter 17 and why Ezekiel 17 is picked for this weekend to be paired with this gospel text. All nations will find rest in Christ. Again, the people would have been frustrated by hearing Jesus continue to speak in parables. They don't understand. They have this false hope of what the Messiah would do, and the parables don't fit that either. But to his own disciples, Jesus would explain everything. And Mark is not one who is too prone to giving us explanations. Matthew records some of the explanations, I think, more often. But we can unpack these parables over the coming weeks as we see them together.